recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Tegenier on TalkShoe. Well, really, it's just Chris Tegenier, and TalkShoe is a, uh, just another outlet for our programs, which are also broadcast on two of our own servers, and, and Chris Tegenier has its own chat room. So those people that are listening on TalkShoe may want to sign up for a membership at ChrisTegenier.org, which would give you access to that chat room, and you'll find a... Um, an excellent group of people there. Chris Tegani received over 25,000 visits. During the month of January. And just short of 60,000, 60,000 podcasts were downloaded last month. We are thankful. To Yahweh for that and humble by it and pray that we can continue to be so effective. Of late, I have been um, probably wasting some time addressing many universalists on Facebook, several of whom are professed followers of the Novemberite. I like that term, the Novemberite. The people who listen to my programs will know who I mean. The German National Socialists use that same term as a label for their communist Jew adversaries. And now it quite, it, it quite aptly fits those universalists who are masquerading as identity Christians. You know, I do not always speak politely to these people. I have been criticized of late for that. Whore and bastard are Bible words. If you have ever quoted the King James Version of the Bible and criticized me for using terms such as whore, which appears in the King James Version of the Bible 16 times, and bastard in context similar to what is found there, then you are a hypocrite. Calling people swine, dogs, whores, bastards, Yahweh does not care for political correctness, and neither will I. Yahweh does not care for hurting a man's feelings. What are you, girls? Or even a woman's? Neither shall I. We are amidst a war for the survival of our race. While vengeance belongs exclusively to our God, we are encouraged nevertheless to fight the fight and to run the race. If you think we should be choir boys under these circumstances, well, I think you better change your diet because you have a serious shortage of testosterone. Too much tofu and fast foods can do that to a man. If you are offended by me, then I would imagine that some Jew is holding your testicles for you as a collateral for your indiscretions. Those who would sympathize with the very beasts who are devouring our people and destroying our nation do not deserve any propriety whatsoever. Yahweh has no mercy for such beasts, and I won't show them any either.
Today is Friday, February 1st, 2013. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. We will commence with the prophecy of Amos, part one. I don't know how long this is going to take. I had um, fallen into the, into the habit last year after I did the Revelation series of putting at least one minor prophet in between e- each of the, the expositions on New Testament scripture I've been doing. So today, I, I mean, we've done Hosea and Joel and, and um, out of order, and, and to address particular issues, I presented Malachi, Obadiah, and Jonah. So now it's time for Amos. The... the um, New Testament expositions will begin again once we're finished with Amos. I mean, this is going to take several weeks, I believe. We're not going to get very far at all into Amos tonight. We have a lot of um, basically history and biblical history and inscriptions to present. And, and, and this gives me an opportunity to do Inevitable that my calls. It, it's inevitable that my calls from at, at talks you were going to drop at least once a program. It's been like that for almost two months now. I don't, as I was saying while I was disconnected to talks you. I don't need talks you to do my programs. It, it's um, I can broadcast this program on all four of my Christogonia servers if I wanted to, rather than the two that I do at the present time. The, um, the people that are listening on TalkShow are more than welcome to listen at Christogonia.org to either of the two top players, Christogonia Live and Christogonia Live 2. The, the um, TalkShow system simply gives me another public face. It, it's just another outlet. It's, it's another um, opportunity to attract people to our message. As I was saying, I was in the habit of doing a minor prophet in between each of my expositions on, on the book of the New Testament scriptures, and, and Amos is a commencement of that. I had been doing the, the, the Gospel of Luke for so long that it seems like it's been years since I've discussed a minor prophet. It's really only been about seven months, perhaps. Tonight we will commence with Amos, and, and I plan, Yahweh willing to present the book of Acts after Amos on on this program on Friday nights. Here is the prophecy of Amos, part one. Many students of the Bible fail to realize, or at least easily forget, and and I also do this at times and, and, and probably often guilty of the same thing, that the promise to Abraham that his seed would possess all of the land from Egypt to the Euphrates, was indeed fulfilled in the days of King David. Even the Jews often deny the fact of that fulfillment, hoping themselves to be the heirs of this land in modern times and pointing to the prophecy in order to justify their treachery. And in spite of the fact that they are not genetic Israel. Here it is in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. 
In the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And the inhabitants of the land are then listed. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim, and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Now it is clear from Scripture that the children of Israel did not exterminate all of the tribes of Canaan as they were so commanded. But that does not mean that they did not possess the land. The fulfillment of this promise of Genesis chapter 15 verse 18 is evident in 2 Samuel chapter 8, which we will read here. All of this I felt is necessary to set the context for the prophecy of Amos. 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 1. And after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured, he put to death. And with one full line to keep alive. In other words, he slew two-thirds of the Moabites. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. David smote also Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. Therefore, David controlled the land eastward up to this point, up to the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and 700 horsemen and 20,000 footmen, and David hoffed, or evidently cut the hamstrings of, all the chariot horses, but reserved of them for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor Hadadezar, king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians two and twenty thousand men. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. Garrisons, of course, would be fortresses of, of soldiers, and, and often with their families. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer, or Hadadezer is probably two words, and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Betah, and from Berothe, cities of Hadad-Ezer. King David took exceeding much brass. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadad-Ezer, then Toy sent Joram his son unto, David, unto King David to salute him, and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer, and smitten him, for Hadad-Ezer had wars with Toy. And Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate unto Yahweh with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued, of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of the Philistines and of Amalek and of the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Let me state that in, in the ancient Babylonian inscriptions, the Ammonites were the people that lived immediately south and, and west 
of Babylon. So David controlled subduing the children of Ammon. He surely did control all the lands of the Euphrates River. And David got him a name when he returned from the smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants. And Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. And David reigned over all Israel. And David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the host. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. And Sariah was the scribe. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Kerithites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief rulers. The Kerithites and Pelethites dwelt on the coast in the area of the Philistines. And David's sons were chief rulers. The house of Judah was ruling over all of these nations. So it is evident that the Philistines, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, were all subjected to Israel in the days of King David. And that his kingdom indeed did stretch from the border of Egypt to the Euphrates. And that David's sons were delegated rulership over parts of this territory. Each of them over parts of this territory. These things are not truly noticeable in inscriptions or in the Bible. Because even in the Bible the original names of these lands were kept. The lands were mostly named after the original occupants. Moab remained Moab. Ammon remained Ammon. Edom remained Edom. And later on, those who inhabited these lands were often called after these names, no matter what tribe they were from. Now, usually the Edomites were Edomites. But the children of Israel also began ruling over these subject people, installing their families, installing colonies, moving the cities in the lands of these subject people. They began to mingle with these subject people, which is evident throughout the biblical narrative, that they went a-whoring after the heathen, as it says in Ezekiel 23.30. And they begot strange children, as it says in Hosea chapter 5, verse 7. The Edomites were subject to Judah for many years, at least until the days of King Jehoram, when they first revolted. We're in 2 Chronicles chapter 21. That's almost the entire kingdom period, right? Verses 8 through 10, it says this. In his days... The Edomites revolted from under the dominion of Judah and made themselves a king. Then Jehoram went forth with his princes and all his chariots with him, and he rose up by night and smote the Edomites which compassed him in, and the captains of the chariots, 
So the Edomites revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. The same time also did Libnah revolt from under his hand because he, meaning Jehoram, had forsaken Yahweh, the God of his fathers. Libnah was a Levitical city of Judah, originally belonging to Canaanites and taken by Joshua. So even cities long occupied by Israelites had independently revolted from their own government at times during the period of the divided kingdom. The Philistines were also subject to Judah for a very long time. In the days of Jehoshaphat, who ruled from around 872 to 847 B.C., we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 11, also some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and tribute silver, and the Arabians brought him flocks, 7,700 rams, and 7,700 goats, he goats. Later, the Philistines successfully revolted around the same time that the Edomites did in the reign of Jehoram, king of Judah, the son of Jehoshaphat. The Moabites were subject to Israel and not Judah until the days of Jehoram or Joram, who is also called Jehoram, but it's a different Jehoram, the king of Israel, which is described in 2 Kings chapter 3 thusly. Now Jehoram, the son, actually the grandson, of Ahab began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of Yahweh, but not like his father and like his mother, Ahab and Jezebel, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. And Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep master, and rendered unto the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs, and a hundred thousand rams with the wool. But it came to pass, when Ahab was dead, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. The Moabites were defeated, but rebelled and fought Israel again in the days of Jehoahaz circa 814 to 798 B.C., 2 Kings chapter 13. And once more in the days of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, did they take league with the Ammonites and Edomites against Judah, and their armies were all destroyed, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So the Moabites were under the yoke until that time and beyond. Likewise, the Ammonites were still tribute to Judah in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, around the very time when Amos is prophesying. Where in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 8, we read, And the Ammonites gave gifts to Uzziah, and his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt, for he strengthened himself exceedingly. Well, the children of Israel built many cities in Ammon. Here in the opening chapters of Amos, we see seven nations, if they can properly be called nations, being chastised by Yahweh, Damascus and the people of the Syrians, or Aram, Gaza, a Philistine city, it was not a region or a strip at that time, right? It was just a city, and the Philistines, 
The Tyrians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, Judah and Israel are all being chastised by Yahweh in the opening chapters of Amos. Until this time, or not long before, all of these regions were part of the kingdom left behind by David. All were occupied by a great number of Israelites, and all were ruled over at one time by the princes of Judah. After the time of Solomon, Israel and Judah were divided. And we are not told many of the specifics concerning the circumstances of the outlying countries which had been or still are during the period of the divided kingdom subject to either Israel or Judah. We're only told when they revolted from Israel or Judah. And I have just quoted the passages where they were revolted. So we see that the children of Israel occupied lived in, ruled over, and collected tribute from all of these lands around them, sometimes for as long as two or three hundred years from the time of David. I didn't do the math, I'm sorry. 2 Kings chapter 14 describes the reign of Jeroboam II during which Amos prophesied. And a reading of it will help to establish the context of the prophet to some degree. 2 Kings 14.1 In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. He was 20 and five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years. in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh, yet not like David his father. He did according to all the things as Joash his father did. Howbeit, the high places were not taken away. As yet, the people did sacrifice and burn incense on the high places, paganism. And it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, that he slew his servants, which had slain the king his father. But the children of the murderers he slew not. According unto that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein Yahweh commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children be put to death for the fathers. But every man shall be put to death for his own sin. He slew of Edom in the valley of salt 10,000, took Salah by war, and called the name of it Jachfiel to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give thy daughter to my son to wife. And there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trod down the thistle. Thou hast indeed smitten Edom, and mine heart has lifted thee up. Glory of this, and tarry at home. For why should you meddle to thy hurt? 
that you should fall, even you and Judah with thee. But Amaziah would not hear. Therefore Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, looked one another in the face at Beth Shemesh, which belonged to Judah. And Judah was put to the worst before Israel. And they fled every man to their tents. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, took Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh and came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim under the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasures of the king's houses and hostages and returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did and his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his stead. This is Jeroboam II, the king of Israel in the days of Amos. Of course, he's Jeroboam II because the first king of Israel after Solomon in the divided kingdom was also named Jeroboam. And we see from this account that Edom is still subject to Judah in these days. And Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, 15 years. And the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and slew him there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. This is that Uzziah of the opening of Amos' prophecy. He built the Uath and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his fathers. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Amos prophecies that Jeroboam too would die by the sword for this sin later in his book. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath. Now Hamath is a city in far northern Syria. We will talk about it again later. From the entering of Hamath under the plain of the sea, according to the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. For Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And Yahweh said, not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and his might, how he warred, how he recovered Damascus and Hamath. They were the major cities of Syria, Damascus in the south of Syria, or towards the south, and Hamath in the far north. 
So the Syrians or, or their major cities are subject to Israel at the time when Amos writes. How he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah, for Israel. So they were under the yoke of Judah and moved to be under the yoke of Israel. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel. And Zechariah, his son, reigned in his stead. There are other things going on here, and we'll see this shortly. The, the Assyrians, for a hundred years before the time of Jeroboam II, had been invading the cities in Syria and collecting tribute and putting them under their yoke. So we actually have, and we'll see that in the inscriptions, we actually have a whole lot more, more geopolitics and, and um, the, the collection and movements of forces and, and, and the, the, the showing of muscles and bristling of might. We have a whole lot more of that than we see in the biblical account because the Assyrians aren't really a factor yet. Not in the Bible narrative, but they are a factor in the wider world. While we cannot possibly discuss all of the history leading up to and even encompassing the events of the prophecies of this book, with this general context now understood, we can now begin to examine the book of Amos. Chapter 1, verse 1. From the King James, of course. The word of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. The name Amos means burden. Tekoa was a city of Judah fortified in the days of Rehoboam, the first king of Judah after Solomon, the first king of Judah when the kingdom was divided. That can be seen in 2 Chronicles chapter 11. So Amos literally was a shepherd in Judah. This Jeroboam is Jeroboam II, who ruled over the northern kingdom of Israel from about 793 B.C. to about 753 B.C., at least in many of the popular chronologies. The reign of this Jeroboam, the son of Joash, is recounted in 2 Kings chapter 14. We've just read it. The prophet Hosea has his ministry around this same time. So Amos was certainly a contemporary of Hosea. However, Hosea's ministry must have lasted some time longer than that of Amos. The proof is in the text of Hosea. The prophet Isaiah began his ministry in the time of the same Uzziah, who was also called Azariah, as we've just seen in 2 Kings chapter 14, and who ruled Judah until about 739 B.C. Isaiah does not mention the king of Israel until Pekah in Isaiah chapter 7, and Pekah ruled around 740 B.C. Therefore, it is evident that Amos probably preceded Isaiah in the beginning of his ministry by about 15 years and perhaps even longer. While the prophecy of Amos knows no king in Israel except for Jeroboam, the prophet foretells of Jeroboam's death. It cannot be told from the text how long Amos' ministry lasted, 
But in all likelihood, it ended before that death, the death of Jeroboam II, in about 753 B.C. The phrase, two years before the earthquake, which we've just read in Amos 1.1, may itself be a prophecy, or it may be that these words were written later and in retrospect. However, verse 2 is a prophetic statement which seems to forebode the earthquake. It was not written later. It's talking of a future event. The earthquake mentioned in several places in Amos is generally believed by archaeologists to have occurred circa 750 B.C. that there's been archaeological evidence uncovered of this earthquake, or which is believed to be of this earthquake, circa 750 B.C., and, and we can understand that the dating of rocks and stones and buildings that fell nearly 3,000 years ago is not very precise. The earthquake, esteemed to be this earthquake, is esteemed to have been as high as an 8 on the Richter scale. And, and of course, they didn't have Richter scales back then, but we have them now. It may have been the model for the imagery projected in the prophecy of an earthquake in the last days described in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah had to live through this earthquake, right? Zechariah, a prophet of the much later Second Temple period, referred to this very earthquake when he wrote in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yeah, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And Yahweh my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Isaiah 5.25 also seems to be a look back at this earthquake, which Isaiah must have lived through in his younger years, and where he says, Therefore is the anger of Yahweh kindled against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, and he has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. It is possible, but not necessarily so, that Micah also was prophesying this earthquake at Micah chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. If indeed Micah began his prophetic ministry at the very beginning of the reign of Jotham, the king of Judah, Amos chapter 1, verse 2. And he said, Yahweh will roar from Zion, or Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Carmel, the mountain near the coast. This seems to forebode the coming earthquake, which is mentioned in verse 1. The following verses of Amos are an oracle against Damascus. Syria was subjected to Israel by David. Damascus first revolted under Rezan in the days of Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 11. In 1 Kings chapter 15, Damascus is still independent and in league with Judah against Israel. 
Verse 3, Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the places of Ben-Hadad. Hazael was anointed king by the prophet Elijah, which we see in 1 Kings chapter 19, and I will read from verse 15. And Yahweh said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, the Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahoah, thou shalt anoint to be prophet in thy room, meaning he would take Elijah's place. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Ahab presumably ruled from 874 to 853 B.C. And both Ahaziah and Joram, or Jehoram, ruled over Israel before Jehu became king in 841 B.C. In 1 Kings chapter 20, we see an account concerning Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And I could be wrong. I think I am wrong. I think Joram is Ahab's son because he was Ahaziah's brother, if I remember correctly. I didn't look it up. In 1 Kings chapter 20, we see an account concerning Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. Hazael was what was appointed, or, or Yahweh told Elijah to appoint Hazael king in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now here it is possible that this mention of Ben-Hadad is a reference to Hazael. And since the name presumably means son of Hadad, a Syrian idol, it may simply be a title. That's what it seems to be. It's used of Hazael, but it's also the name with which Hazael's son was popularly known, both in the Bible and in inscriptions. But here it's a, in, in, one King, in 1 Kings chapter 20, it's a title for Hazael himself. Hazael's death is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 13, where it is described that he is succeeded by his son, who is called Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, is known from 2 Kings chapters 8 through 12. An inscription bearing the name of Ben-Hadad of Damascus was found in an ancient cemetery near Aleppo in northern Syria dedicated to his lord Melkart, a pagan Syrian deity. However, the name was also popular in Carthage among the Phoenicians. The inscriptions noted in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, Princeton University Press, J. Pritchard, editor, 1969, it was published, here and after, I will just refer to it as A-N-E-T. And that's on page 655. 
However, Hazael and Ben-Hadad are also mentioned in other inscriptions. The Shalmanasar of 2 Kings chapters 17 and 18 is known to archaeologists as Shalmanasar V, and he ruled in Assyria near the middle of the 8th century BC. The Bible usually does not tell us much of what is happening outside of its own immediate scope, which is usually the events surrounding the capital cities of Israel, Samaria, and Jerusalem, Israel and Judah. But by the middle of the 9th century BC, the very time of Elijah, the Assyrians are already making conquests of the cities of the Syrians, the Hittites, and other tribes of the north. And they had put Hamath, Damascus, Biblos, Sidon, and Tyre all under tribute in that century, among other cities. All of these things are known from ancient Assyrian inscriptions. From a basalt statue discovered by archaeologists which contained an inscription from the reign of Salmanasar III, not the Shalmanasar of the Bible, but one of his predecessors a hundred years sooner, who presumably, I say presumably with these dates because that, that they're always, um, there are always questions, none of them are perfect, who presumably ruled from 854 to 828 BC, which is consistent, it's perfectly consistent with the time of the rule of Ahab concerning the anointing of Hazael, which we have provided earlier. The anointing of Hazael is king of Damascus in the days of Elijah. This is what it says on that basalt statue, and I quote, this is from ancient Near Eastern texts, page 280. I defeated... Hadadezer of Damascus, together with his 12 princes, his allies. This Hadadezer is mentioned in the Bible as being the king of Damascus at this time. I stretched upon the ground 20,900 of his strong warriors like Shubi. The meaning of the word Shubi, the word Shubi is not translated because the meaning is not known. The remnants of his troops I pushed into the Orantes River, and they dispersed to save their lives. Hadadezer himself perished. Hazael, a commoner, literally the word means son of a nobody, seized the throne, called up a numerous army and rose against me. I fought with him and defeated him, taking the chariots of his camp. He disappeared to save his life. I marched as far as Damascus, his royal residence, and cut down his gardens. There were at least four campaigns described in the inscriptions by Salmanasar III, the king of Assyria, against Damascus. But he never took the inhabitants, nor did he destroy the city. So it is evident that in 1 Kings chapter 19, Yahweh tells Elijah to anoint Hazael king. 
and seems to be indicating in that that Syria's immediate attack against Israel under Hazael, which we see in 1 Kings chapter 20, where he's called Ben-Hadad, is by Yahweh's commission as a punishment against Ahab. However, at the same time, from the north, Assyria is encroaching upon Damascus and the cities of Syria and the other northern cities, cities which were once subject to Israel. The Bible tells us that Hazael was anointed king by a prophet of Yahweh. However, the Assyrians, as we've read in this inscription, the Assyrians saw him as an interloper, the son of a nobody. Yet the Assyrian records corroborate the Old Testament accounts, albeit indirectly, since they have an entirely different perspective. The prophet Jonah wrote during the time of these earlier Assyrian conquests, and for that reason he feared the Assyrians, and had hoped that Yahweh would destroy them. Some years later, as we've just read the account, Jeroboam II, the king of Israel at the time of Amos, subjected Syria to Israel once again. In 2 Kings chapter 14, 28, speaking of the same time in which Amos is writing, it says of Jeroboam too, I'm repeating this. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and his might, how he warred, how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah, for Israel. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now, of course, the victories of Jeroboam II were short-lived, and within a few decades of his passing, all of the cities of Syria and even Samaria itself would fall into the hands of the Assyrians. However, the Bible doesn't really pay any attention when Jeroboam II takes these lands back and, and subjects them to Israel, the Bible doesn't really pay any attention at all to the fact that the Assyrians held them and, and held them for quite some time. The Assyrians were holding Hamath. The Assyrians had put Damascus on, under tribute. The Bible ignores that. But it's, it, it's evident in the inscriptions. And where they both discuss the replacement of Hadad Ezer, the dead Hadad Ezer, with Hazael, even though the Bible tells us that a prophet of Yahweh anointed Hazael king over Damascus, the Assyrians tell us that the son of a nobody usurped the throne. Well, well that's totally understandable. We see that the Assyrian records corroborate the Bible 100%, except that the perspective in how Hazael came to the throne is different. How does Yahweh have, um, how does a prophet of Yahweh, well, of course, Yahweh's God, we know that. How does a prophet of Yahweh have the ability to go to Damascus and, and appoint a king? Because Damascus belonged to David. David took Damascus. And even though Damascus was often in a state of revolt from Israel and Judah, Damascus was a subject vassal state until the Assyrians came along and, and made it impossible, for, of course, for Israel and Judah to hold on to it.
Amos chapter 1, verse 5. I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon. And him that holds the scepter from the house of Eden and the people of Syria shall go into captivity into Kir, saith Yahweh. Under Tiglath Pileser III, who presumably ruled Assyria from 744 to 727 BC, Assyria conquered the town of Hadara, the inherited property of Rezan of Damascus, the place where he was born. Ancient Near Eastern Text, page 282. Fully verifying 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 9, where it says, And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, and carried the people of it captive to Kir, and slew Rezin, that same Rezin of Damascus. The Assyrian inscription cited goes on, above goes on to describe many of the prisoners taken away by the Assyrians at this time. And it says... 592 towns of the 16 districts of Damascus I destroyed, making them look like hills of, mine, of ruined cities over which the flood had swept. The flood meaning a reference to the river, right? That's in ancient Near Eastern text, page 282. In the text of Amos, the name Kir is not accompanied with the article. And the word simply means wall. Therefore, the exact reference is ambiguous. The word appears as a prefix to the names of many cities. The word is related to the word which provides the first syllable in the names Carthage and Carchemish, which is also found in the names of many other walled cities. Strong's Concordance states that Kiev was a place in Assyria, also one of, in Moab. Hebrew number 7024. However, I have not yet seen its name alone in inscriptions. There was a city named Kirkuk, for instance, in ancient Mesopotamia, in a district formerly known as Arapa, which is mentioned in several inscriptions and which still exists in Iraq today. So that's another example of the prefix, the word being used as a prefix for the name of city. It seems that the Syrians had originated in this place called Kir. And we see at Amos 9.7, Yahweh says in part, have, I, have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir? The ancient district of Padanaram, known from Genesis chapters 25 through 46, is a name which means Plain of Aram. Abraham sent there for Abraham sent there for a wife for Isaac. Isaac sent Jacob there to get himself a wife. That's where his kin lived. That's where that's where Jacob's father in law, the father of Rachel and Leah lived. Laban the Syrian, Laban the Aramean. Aram is a name for that tribe which is akin to the Hebrews, Genesis chapter 10, verse 22. 
But the Hebrew name for Aram is usually translated as Syrian in the King James Version in the Old Testament. And in reference to their land, it is translated as Syria. If the original land of Aram was in northern Mesopotamia, where Padan Aram is clearly located, then Kir must be there. And the Syrians of Damascus must have been deported back to that region from whence their ancestors had come. In the later annals of Sargon II, who ruled from 721 to 705 B.C., there are records that not only did he destroy Samaria, the capital city of Israel, and take away 27,290 of its inhabitants into captivity, but in records that are broken and quite incomplete, Damascus had suffered a similar fate. Hamath was also conquered by Sargon II around the same time after the city rebelled under the leadership, according to the Assyrian records, of a cursed Hittite who had usurped the throne there. That's from Ancient Near Eastern Texts, pages 284 and 285. All of these notes will be posted with the podcast on Christagenia.org. As an aside, in the even later Greek and Roman histories, the inhabitants of what became known as Cappadocia in eastern Anatolia are called White Syrians. However, Herodotus merely refers to the Cappadocians, whom we Greeks know by the name of Syrians. That's in Herodotus's, Herodotus's Histories, Book 5, Paragraph 49. It's also in uh, a similar statement is in Book 1, Paragraph 72. The geographer Strabo merely explains that the Syrians of Cappadocia, north of the Taurus Mountains, lack the tanned skin of those who dwelt south of the Taurus Mountains, where the climate's a lot hotter and more arid. But nevertheless, they were Syrians, and were therefore called White Syrians, Strabo's, Strabo's Geography, Book 12, Chapter 3, Paragraph 9. Strabo later took care to explain that while the Cappadocians were called white Syrians, the other Syrians were not black. For he makes a sarcastic comment saying, as though some Syrians were black, indicating that they certainly were not. There were not any black Syrians. The idea is ridiculous. Strabo, Geography, Book 16, Chapter 1, Paragraph 2. While the cities of Syria were certainly populated with the people of Aram, they must also have been populated with many Israelites. Since the cities of Syria were for a long time subject to Israel, as we have already established here. This is also evident in the words of Isaiah, chapter 10, verses 5 to 11, where several cities taken away by the Assyrians are compared, and I will read it, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. Of course, these are the words of Yahweh our God. To take this, oh, I'm sorry, I will send him against the hypocritical nation, meaning the children of Israel, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge. 
to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit, he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations not a few. For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Are not my princes altogether kings? So the princes of Israel are still ruling over these cities that David conquered. Is not Kalno as Karkamesh? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? As my hand found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? In these comparisons, Kalno and Hamath, cities in northern Syria, must have been inhabited by Israelites, as Samaria was. Jeroboam 2, as it says in 2 Kings 14.28, I read this for the third time, or I refer to it for the third time, recovered Hamath for Israel. Arpad and Damascus may have been primarily Aramean. Carchemish, well, Carchemish, it, it, its actual substance is difficult to determine. Carchemish was at one time, of course, the principal city of those accursed Hittites, also subjected by the Assyrians. Verse 6, thus saith Yahweh, for three, three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity, to deliver them up to Edom, the slave trade, amongst the Philistines and the Phoenicians, was pretty lucrative. And I will cut them. I'm sorry, but I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof. And I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him that holds the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn mine hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith Yahweh God. The beginning of the prophecy is realized in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, who ruled from about 729 B.C. This is a couple of decades after Amos' time. Here it is in 2 Kings 18. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, one of the last kings of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old he was when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His, mother, his mother's name also was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For under those days, the children of Israel did burn incense to it. They misused it. 
even though it was a relic, right? It's a thing. It doesn't matter. And he called it Nehushtan. He trusted in Yahweh, God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he claved to Yahweh and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which Yahweh commanded Moses. And Yahweh was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. He smote the Philistines, even unto Gaza, and the borders thereof, from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. Yet this did not totally destroy the Philistines. And we also see here that the Assyrian deportations of the northern kingdom of Israel had begun at this same time. Yet many of the people of the Philistines were also carried away captive by the Assyrians. From the annals of Sargon II, we read this, which is part of a longer description describing the conquest of Philistia by this Assyrian king. I besieged and conquered the cities Ashdod, Gath, Asdudimu. I declared his, referring to Azuri, the king of Ashdod, I declared his images, his wife, his children, all the possessions and treasures of his palace, as well as the inhabitants of his country as booty. They were all carried off. I reorganized the administration of these cities and settled therein people from the regions of the east, which I had conquered personally, ancient Near Eastern texts, page 286. Later, in the annals of Sargon II, that king takes offense that a Greek commoner had come to rule Ashdod, and the city is again besieged and defeated. In some of the early Greek poets, uh, I believe it's, in, it's mentioned in Sappho, the lyric poet. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Sappho, the lyric poet. It's mentioned that some Greeks had actually been mercenaries for the Assyrians. That's another thing that we really don't see a lot of. It's mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 27 that the Greeks, the Ionians, and the Danans, who were actually the long-ago dispersed tribe of Dan, a portion of Dan, the Ionians and the Danans had trade and intercourse with Tyre and some of the other cities of, of Palestine. What's not mentioned in the Bible is that the Greeks really had a, a much larger presence amongst the cities of Palestine than the Jews of today would like us to believe. Greek mercenaries fought for the Assyrians. Greek mercenaries were almost certainly at the walls of Jerusalem when the Assyrian army was destroyed. Greek mercenaries fought for the Babylonians. Greek mercenaries almost certainly took part and the deportations of their, their, their long-separated Israel brethren, and also at Jerusalem in 585 B.C. with the book of Nezar. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 6, there was a prophecy which states, And the bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Of course, the Philistines were not bastards, 
but had descended from Mizraim, Genesis chapter 10, verse 14. The prophecy does help to establish that the later inhabitants are indeed bastards. Today, the cities of the Philistines are populated with Arabs. The word Arab means mixed. They are the fulfillment of that prophecy. Yet here at this time, long before Zechariah, not quite all of the Philistines had, been yet, had yet been destroyed, which is clear from the historic and biblical records. Many of them must have escaped, where some of the children of Israel dwelling in those lands, which were long subject to Israel, must have escaped with them. In a different prophecy, Isaiah says in chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Now where the King James Version has shoulders, the Septuagint, as ships, they shall fly upon the ships of the Philistines towards the west. In the annals of Sennacherib, who presumably ruled from 704 to 681 BC, Ashkelon was reduced, and the king of Ashkelon and his entire family was deported to Assyria, and the city put under tribute with another Philistine appointed as king. Ancient Near Eastern text, page 287. While the subsequent history of the city is murky, it is mentioned by Herodotus, who seems to have visited it. Herodotus wrote probably about 450 to 430 BC. There he says, among other things, that he found the most ancient of all the temples belonging to the pagan idol, celestial Aphrodite. Herodotus Herodotus's Histories, chapter 1, paragraph 105. Gaza was already a vassal state of the Assyrians, which is evident in the annals of Sennacherib, who presumably ruled from 704 to 681 BC. This is from Ancient Near Eastern Text, page 288. And the records of Esar Hadan, who's mentioned in the book of... Um, I believe it's Ezra. It might be Nehemiah. I think it's Ezra. And the records of Esar Hadan, king of Assyria, who ruled from 680 to 669 BC, we see that Gaza was under tribute to Assyria during this period. Ancient Near Eastern text, page 291. The situation had not changed in the later reign of Ashurbanipal, 688 to 633 BC, Ancient Near Eastern text, page 294. It cannot be told in the inscriptions which I have access to just how Gaza had been subjected. I'm sure the prophecy was fulfilled that Yahweh sent a fire on the wall of Gaza. Gaza was, sub- was subjected, but I, I, I just can't tell how, right? Later, Gaza is listed in a fragmented inscription for the rule of Nebuchadnezzar II, which lists the officials set over the various cities during the time of his administration. So we see that in the time of the Babylonians, it is still a subject city and a vassal state. 
The fate of the rest of the inhabitants of the Philistines is in part revealed in the annals of Sennacherib, 704-681 B.C. I will quote a lengthy inscription. In the continuation of my campaign, I besieged Beth Dagon, the house of Dagon. Joppa. Now, Joppa is a city which... um, Actually, Josephus connects Joppa to the famous story where Perseus saves Andromeda from the sea monster. And Josephus actually says that the chains which held Andromeda to the shore were still visible. Benai Barqua, Azuru, cities belonging to Sidkia, who did not bow to my feet quickly enough. I conquered them and carried their spoils away. The officials, the patricians, and the common people of Ekron, who had thrown Paddy, their king, into fetters, because he was loyal to his solemn oath sworn by the god Asher, in other words, Paddy, the king of Ekron, remained loyal to the Assyrians, and his subjects did not like that, so they arrested him, and had him handed over to Hezekiah, the Judahite, And he, Hezekiah, held him in prison unlawfully, as if he, Paddy, be an enemy, had become afraid and called for help upon the kings of Egypt. And the bowmen, the chariot corps, and the cavalry of the king of Ethiopia, an army beyond counting, in other words, the people of the cities of the Philistines, and the people of the city of Joppa, which is actually an Israelite city, and Israelites probably inhabited many of these cities. There's archaeological evidence that Israelites were at Ashkelon, that Israelite Levitical priests were active in Ashkelon, and all the cities of the coast, Dor, Joppa, at this time and before this time. And we see another manifestation of the people of Palestine appealing to the kings of Egypt, which Yahweh had warned against. We see them doing that here, as attested to in the Assyrian inscriptions of Sennacherib. And also the cavalry of the king of Ethiopia, an army beyond counting. And they actually had come to their assistance. In the plain of El Teca, Their battle lines were drawn up against me, Sennacherib, and they sharpened their weapons. Upon a trust-inspiring oracle given by Asher, my lord, I fought with them and inflicted a defeat upon them. In the melee of the battle, I personally captured alive the Egyptian charioteers with their princes and also the charioteers of the king of Ethiopia, I besieged Alteca and Timnah, conquered them, and carried their spoils away. I assaulted Ekron and killed the officials and the patricians who had committed the crime and hung their bodies on poles surrounding the city. The common citizens who were guilty of minor crimes I considered prisoners of war. The rest of them, who were not accused of crimes and misbehavior, I released. I made Patty their king, 
come from Jerusalem and set him as their Lord on a throne, imposing upon him the tribute due to me as overlord. Ancient Near Eastern texts, pages 287 and 288. The very next paragraph in the same inscription describes Sennacherib's taking of the 46 fenced cities of Judah, the deportation of over 200,000 of their inhabitants, and the siege of Jerusalem which failed in the days of Hezekiah, all of which are recorded in the Bible. Of course, the Assyrian king Sennacherib told the story of the siege, the failed siege of Jerusalem a little differently. He had to turn it into a victory, so he bragged about how he left Hezekiah um, shut up like a bird in a cage. That, that's another example of two different aspects of the same story for political purposes. The Bible, especially considering its great antiquity, it's found to be a very reliable book, both historically and prophetically, when it is compared to the secular records, the Assyrian inscriptions in this case. This is edifying, I believe, because we see both the fulfillment of these prophecies and the verification of that fulfillment outside of the scripture. I will be here to pick up where I'm leaving off next week with Amos Part 2. Thank you. Good night and praise Yahweh.